Well, good morning, everybody. Um, go ahead, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it to Galatians. Surprise, surprise, but we're back there this morning. Um, Steve mentioned this, but uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll mention it again. Like, this is a little bit of a weird week for many of us. Um, and by that, I, I just mean, um, you know, I don't know even how many of you are even familiar with the name Tim Keller. Uh, obviously, he's written a lot of books, planted a church in the late 80s in Manhattan that went on to not only be um, one of the impetuses, is that a word, impetuses? Yes, thank you, Chris. Um, for for not just planting of churches, but planting of churches in global cities where, where the evangelical church had fled um, in the kind of the previous couple decades in our denomination. So not only was the impetus for that in our denomination, but like in a plethora of different Christian traditions. And so I, I'm not even sure, and I, I, I said this to the staff, I'm not even sure we can um, fully grasp the weight of God's impact through Tim it's going to take decades, I think, for us to really understand it. Um, and as much as, as we learned and have learned, and many of us have learned from his preaching, from his writings, um, during his life, I will say that probably some of the most meaningful things I heard from Tim, and I didn't personally hear them, but were reported, had to do with what he said as he died. Um, and it, as, a, as a kind of a encouragement and a sobering encouragement to remind us that uh, like for the Christian and I know not everybody in here is a Christian um, yet uh, but as a Christian um, death for the believer is not something to be feared uh, it's a it's a transition before the face of the Savior and so here's a guy who preached uh, <laughs> Preached Jesus as the new and better everything from the Old Testament, and now he gets to sit in front of the face of that same Jesus, which is a glorious thing. Sad for many of us, but glorious. Um, uh, also, yesterday was my 23rd wedding anniversary. Um, now, before you all ask, we didn't do anything. Um, but don't blame that on me. We're, we're going out tonight. The reason I say this is because um, my, my wife, with my daughter, thought it would be a good idea for my birthday to get my daughter and me, not my wife, tickets to go see Ed Sheeran last night in Tampa, which was awesome. But if I hear from one more person how I'm a bad husband because I went to Ed Sheeran, it was her idea, okay? It's all I want to say. Her idea. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. All right. Hey, we've got nine weeks left in Galatians, and my, my son Andrew was flabbergasted that we could spend nine weeks on like a chapter and a half or two chapters, but indeed, we have nine weeks um, left. And what we're doing right now and what we've been doing is we've been seeing how Christianity is actually um, about our freedom, which is weird because for many of us, Christianity is about restrictions and rules and all this stuff, but the, the, the Bible, the, the New Testament especially, would say, no, 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 it's actually about us being free. 
And for the first several chapters of Galatians, Paul, the early Christian uh, leader who wrote this, has spent the majority of his time focusing on who we are and is now beginning to turn a corner into what that means for us, what we are called to be. Okay? In um, theological kind of lingo, we would say that he spent the first part of it, not exclusively, but majority of it, dealing with the indicative, who we are, what is true of us, and now he's moving into the imperative, what, what that means for us. And the logic of Christianity is often, um, if not always, moves in that direction. We go be who we are. We're not, being, we're not doing something to become someone that we're not, if that makes sense. We live out of who we are. And so, um, this morning, as we get into chapter 5, that's kind of where we're at. So, if you have your place in Galatians chapter 5, go ahead and stand um, in honor of God's word. Uh, we're going to be just be reading the first six verses. Thus, why it takes us two months to get through uh, two chapters. All right? Here we go. This is God's word. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to your yoke of slavery. Look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, no matter what we've brought into this room or, um, or brought into our viewing online, we, we come needing the same thing. We need the Spirit of God to open our hearts to receive the word of God so that we might trust in the Son of God who has fulfilled for us the will of God, our salvation. And if you don't do this, Lord, we are lost. And so we look to you and ask for your clarity. Do not trust in anyone else, especially not the one talking. Lord, let, let your glory shine forth. Let everything that Jesus has done come to the forefront and everything else fall away. We ask that you do this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So um, in case anyone ever asks me to come over, um, I'm just going to tell you right now, I stink at poker. I stink at poker. I'm terrible at it. And it's not because I don't understand how the game works, okay? So it's not like I'm an easy mark, you know, like, oh, he stinks. Let's bring him over and see how much money we can win. It's not that I, I don't understand how the game works. It's not that I don't have a good poker face. In fact, before I was a Christian, and sadly for some time thereafter, I was this generation's greatest liar, hands down. It's not that at all. Um, it's, it's really that I'm a terrible poker player because I want to play, not fold, as soon as I look at my hand. And as anyone in this room knows, to play poker, you've got to know when to hold them. You've got to know when to fold them. You've got to know when to walk away. And you better know when to run, okay? I will not sing Kenny's song, but I do love it. So 
If you play, though, you know that the strategy is to do that. It is to, it is to hold at times and then to fold when you see you don't have it. And I don't like that. It's boring. And so what I want to do is I want to play, which means that more often than is healthy for me or my wallet, which is why I don't play anymore, I tend to go all in. All in. And you know, if you know what all in means, it means you're pushing all of your chips into the center of the table. You are betting everything on the fact that you either have a hand that's worth winning or that you can fool everyone into thinking that you have a hand that's worth winning, which means that I often uh, walk away early broke. That's what that means. <sighs> that kind of commitment, the all in kind of thing, is not something that we're good at. Just as a people, and I'm, I'm moving off of the, even the concept of those of you who don't play poker. I just mean like that kind of commitment is hard. I mean, we even have another gambling term that we use to talk about how we don't like to go all in. It's called hedging our bets, right? It's where we, where we kind of lay, uh, kind of have one foot over here and one foot over here. And this is what we do. We do this with tons of things. We, uh, we do this with um, keeping lines of communication open. We keep having conversations with that old employer just in case something happens. Some of us, sadly, have used social media to keep up with that old flame. Just in case. We hedge our bets. Some of us even do this with Jesus, and that makes sense, right? I mean, man, I... What if it's not as clear as we want it to be? What if, what, if, what if what we've been told is only mostly true? Wouldn't it just be helpful? Let's just cover some of the other bases, just in case. I mean, just in case, right? It's like, I know that Rick keeps saying this, and our church talks about this, but maybe I could just keep one foot over here too, right? That can't be bad, can it? Well, what Paul would tell us, and is telling us this morning, in this passage in particular, is that you have to push all of your chips into the middle of the table on Jesus. And if not, you actually don't have any chips on Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. As always, there's an outline if you'd like to take notes. But let's, let's just jump in with what I think is the most obviously or ridiculously obvious statements in all of the Bible. Look down at verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Duh. Okay? I, I don't, I mean, this, this seems like the biggest obvious statement of all time. And, and so why make it in the first place? Because if we know, if you've learned anything about Paul in the last several weeks, if you didn't know anything about him beforehand, what, you'll, what, what should come across is that Though he's intense, he's very intense, he's, actually, he's also not uh, someone who just kind of flippantly throws words out there. Like, he, he meant something in here, right? So why does he say it? Well, the implication, so when he says for freedom, in, in other words, it's the purpose of Christ's work, the purpose of Christ's freeing us is for us to be free. So the implication is whatever the Galatians are doing, that's not what's going on. They, they've, they've been set free by Christ, and what they're doing is not being free. Now, some of us will think, well, like, Rick, how can we say that? Like, if you're free, you can do basically whatever you want, right? 
Isn't that what freedom means? No, actually. It's not what freedom means. Freedom, at least in the Bible, means to be, to be free to be what you were made to be. In other words, to be who you were supposed to be, not be everything else. Paul is saying that no, whatever you're doing right now, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, and that is not what's going on. And here he fleshes that out. Let's keep reading about standing. Look down the rest of verse 1. He says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Okay, so there it is. Whatever it is that they're doing, and we've talked about this, but Paul is saying that what they're doing is actually submitting themselves to a yoke, the thing that you would put on cattle and oxen to get them to plow a field to pull a wagon. They're submitting themselves to a yoke that is, in fact, putting them back in a position of slavery. Okay, now let's break this down a little bit. Paul says, first, first and foremost, to, to stop against this, they're supposed to stand firm. Now, here's what's alarming about that. Paul uses that phrase, stand firm. It's a word, actually, but we translate it into two. He uses that a lot, and every time he uses it, it's about leaving the faith. Every time he uses that, that phrase, that word, stand firm, he's encouraging people to not leave Jesus. Now, if you were one of the Galatians, if you were one of the, one of the members of one of these churches, if you're a member of this church, that would probably seem a little harsh, right? I mean, you still, you still follow Jesus. You still talk about Jesus. You still sing to Jesus. You're still praying. You like Jesus. Jesus is good. We love Jesus, but we're just doing this other thing too. Right? I mean, what's the... Paul, why... Aren't you kind of overreacting? Yoke of slavery? I mean, he's about to talk about what that is, and it doesn't sound like it's that big a deal. And are you telling me that by what I'm, what, what I'm doing here, I'm actually turning away from Jesus? Man, come on, man. I mean, settle down. Like Xanax, let's settle it down. Things are getting a little crazy. Now, we're going to get to why he's saying this in a minute, but right now, I just want us to be very clear on the fact that Paul's language here reflects that he believes that the danger, the danger that, they, that this, these, the folks in these churches are, are involved in right now is no different than the danger of someone going, I've had enough of you, Jesus, I'm walking away. It's no different. So he says, stand firm instead of submitting again to a yoke of slavery. Now, two, two things about that. Now, first and foremost, again, he's saying that you are, you are using your freedom. Jesus set you free, and what you're doing is you're going, thanks so much. Now I'm going to go be a slave again. And so he is, they are first and foremost taking the yoke of slavery back on themselves. They're placing on themselves a burden to be slaves to something. And secondly, he's saying that you are doing this again. And we covered this a couple weeks ago, but I want to make it really clear. When he says again, the irony, it's not irony, but for us it would be ironic. The irony of this statement is that they were once pagans, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean they were literal pagans, like they worshipped pagan gods, like the pantheon of Rome. And what they are returning to is a Judaistic kind of way of doing things. In other words... They, they were pagans. Now Paul's arguing, and we're going to see it here in a second, that what they're doing is they are, they are actually following something that is 
biblical, but again, it's pushing them towards slavery. And in fact, he says that the two things are equal. They're the same, ultimately. So let me draw these two points together really quick. Think with me. If you believe that there is something that you have to do, some act you have to accomplish, some set of boxes you have to check, something you have to do to provide yourself, to, to get for yourself the thing that you long for the most. And for some of us, that's, that's having a good status. For some of us, that's being safe. For others of us, that's satisfaction. But if, there's, if, if you have to do something to do that, then you must do that something, right? I mean, you, you guys know what it's like to just, con- that, that constant restless feeling that you can never get rid of. You know that feeling like, I just, maybe I'm the only one. I mean, I'm a satisfaction person. So that, that feeling of like, I have to, I feel restless. I don't know what to do with this. I da, 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 da. And so I, I have to satisfy myself. What am I going to do? Uh, I'm going to eat a basket of chips. Ah, now I feel guilty and awful. But it's not restless anymore, right? Like we do that. But the point is, it's like, if you have to provide that thing for yourself, You can never stop working for that thing. You are a slave to it. If you think that that being the good little boy or girl is going to give you the status that you want, that you need, that's going to make you right, that's going to convince everyone that they were wrong about you, and if you do that by keeping your nose clean and making, you will serve that all day long. You will never step out of line. You will never do anything that's going to make someone think less of you, ever. You're a slave. Because one of those things that you might need to do to step out of that is to do something to love someone that may make them think less of you. Well, how do you, I can't do that. So you stay a slave. That's the force of what Paul is trying to say. These Christians are giving up their freedom because they're enslaving themselves to making themselves right again. Stay with me because it's going to get clearer. Let's look down at verses 2 and 3 because Paul starts pushing this dichotomy. Look down at verse 2. Look, he says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, let me be very clear. I understand that some of you are really tired of hearing sermons that deal with the C word, okay? I get it. Uh, Someone came up to me last week and made a comment about it, like, you talk about this thing a lot. To be fair, Paul's doing it, not me, okay? Trust me, this is not the topic of conversation that I want to have with a group of adults, all right? However, Paul is saying that, look, If, if you accept this, Christ is no advantage to to you. So first and foremost, he's getting incredibly aggressive, right? He says, look, basically like, let me get super clear. Let me be really, really clear with you all. And and then he goes into this thing where like, come on, man. You have, this is, this is too much. You're just, you're overreacting, Paul. Like, in, in my world, we'd go, like, Paul's in the middle of an argument. He went high right. Like, he suddenly, like, 
rose up and now he's just digging his feet in and he's getting entrenched and like, come on, can we, can we get a little nicer about that? But here's what he's saying. He's saying Jesus plus anything equals anything but Jesus. You see that? He's saying if you add anything to Jesus, you lose Jesus. If you take Jesus and circumcision, Jesus and baptism, Jesus and my morality, Jesus and my church attendance, Jesus and my tithing, Jesus and my movie watching habits, Jesus and my tolerance, that's what makes me right, that's what keeps me safe, that's what gets me satisfied. Paul says, you have lost Jesus. All you have left is the anything. All you have left is the anything. Okay, but what does he mean? Because that seems, again, circumcision. Like, come on, man. Jewish folks have been doing this for thousands of years at this point. Like, at least 1,400 plus. Like, what are we doing here? Well, to understand that, we need to understand what this is about. Because in Judaism, the first century, this little surgical procedure was more than just like one of the rules. Because you notice he doesn't say like, listen, if y'all, uh, you know, unless you, you uh, start murdering people, Jesus is of no use to you. You know, unless you start having adultery, Jesus is not picking one of the 10. He's going with this. So what is this particular thing? This particular thing is about, it's a marker. It's who's in God's people and who's not. Who's got God's smile and who doesn't? Who's, who's going to be in God's family? Who's in God's family and will be on the last day? And who's not? Because that's the way you would delineate. <laughs> because it was pointing towards something else. And so Paul's saying, like, look, look, what you're doing is you're saying it's not Jesus that gets me the smile of God. It's not Jesus that gets me, that gets me in the family of God. It's Jesus and this other thing. And Paul's saying, when you do that, you're left with the other thing. Okay? He said, and, and here's how he does it. He says, listen, if you want to do that, that's fine. I just need to let you know, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It will be of no advantage to you. In other words, he's saying, if you want to be in based on what you do, then you need to be in based on what you do. Right? Um, the, you know, even um, later he's going to say, in fact, in the very next verse, he says, you have an obligation then. If you're going to do this, I testify to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Right? Now, he's not the only one who said that. Um, Jesus' uh, half-brother James said it too, because he said, if you break the law in any one point, you know that you've broken all of it. We hate that. Like, come on, can't you? Come on, but it was just a little thing. He's like, you don't understand. It's, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a a la carte thing. It's you, you're a law keeper or a lawbreaker. But it was like a speeding ticket. Lawbreaker. But I mean, was it really? Yeah. If you want to be in based on what you do, then you need to be in based on what you do. And why is this? You see, and here's the thing. If our problem is being good, this makes no sense. If our problem is you're just not good enough, humans, you just, you're not moral enough, 
And if this is the case, then this seems like the most outlandish, egotistical, ridiculous thing to do. It's God going like, you got to do it my way or the highway. Like it's it, blah, blah, blah. And some of us have grown up in churches in which that is the way it's been presented to us. Have we not? And so that's why for many of us, God to us is just, he's, he's just kind of a taskmaster. He's hard to follow because we're like, I don't know why he gets so uppity about these things. Like, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. If the problem's morality, it's not. But if the problem, if our problem is independence, see, this makes total sense. If our problem is independence of wanting to, to trust in ourselves because we don't think we can or should or have to trust in him, if we can depend on ourselves, then this is basically like, you can't, I'm kind of depending on God and kind of depending on me because at the end of the day the difference isn't Jesus it's the thing you're doing it's about dependence so long as you are depending on you for anything before God then you aren't depending on Jesus and if you aren't depending on Jesus you're actually making the problem worse and so what he's saying is not like listen no here is what he's saying It's a question of what are you going to depend on. If you want to depend on Jesus, depend on Jesus. But you can't depend on Jesus and on you. If you want to depend on you, that's fine. Go for it. Don't think it's going to go well, but go for it. And he keeps going. Look down at verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, I do not believe that it is coincidental that Paul uses the word severed here. I don't. Paul often does this. He says things like this. He talks about, he's going to talk in a little bit about these guys and the the folks who are troubling them. Maybe he already did. I can't remember. But he's going to say, like, I wish they would go the whole way and just emasculate themselves if they're this passionate about this. Like, he's, this is, he's upset. You have been severed from Christ. You want to go through this surgical procedure? What you don't understand is the procedure you're actually doing is you're severing yourself from Jesus. That's what you're doing. Again, if you add anything to Jesus, you lose Jesus. You've been severed from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Now, listen, you cannot overstate this. If you try to engage with God, and I don't care whether you're trying to come to him for the first time or trying to come to him this morning before you come to church. If you try and engage with him on what you've done, look at what I've done, look how I'm doing, or what I haven't done and how I'm not doing well. If you're trying to engage with God on the basis of your work, hoping that your work will make you right or make you righter with him, you have completely left the principle of grace. Fallen away from grace is another way of saying, and I know that's worked into our colloquialism, but it's Paul saying, like, listen, you've, you've completely left the entire principle. Probably because you and I, we don't think it's that, we're that bad, <laughs> that grace is that necessary. But he says, no, 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 you've completely fallen away from it. You who would be justified by the law. Now, that's a churchy word. I've defined it a few times. I'm going to keep defining it because I think we need to be very clear on it. Um, if you want to, like, justification is about being made right with God, being put in the right with him. It is a status, okay? It's a status. It is both a legal status, but it's also a relational status, okay? 
It's being in the right. If you want to be justified by the law, Paul says, you've fallen away from grace. What does that mean? It means this. If you want to engage with God as a taskmaster, if you want to engage him as an employer, if you want to engage with him as a slave master, you can. It's just not going to go well. If God, you know, there was a parable that Jesus told about, right, maybe you remember it, the parable of the, um, the talents, and by talents it means measures of weight. So um, this, this guy, this rich guy, gives to some of his servants before he goes away on a long trip, which was not unusual, um, he goes away on a long trip, he gives some servants some money. And he basically says, just do something with this. Do something with my money, make something happen with it. And so one guy gives to him a lot, and the whole thing is like the guy who got a lot, he, he uh, multiplies it and comes back with more. And it's like, oh, you did great. And the other guy comes in, and he had a little bit less, but he made it multiply, and, just, and, and the, the master's like, oh, you did great. And then this other guy's like, he comes up, he, had, he was given the least amount, but he comes up and he goes, um, I knew you to be a hard man. You put other people to work, you don't do anything. You reap where you don't sow. You get other people to do all your work for you, and I, you know what? I got scared, so I just um, I dug a hole, I put your money in it, and here it is. I'm giving it back to you. And it's a great parable because in that moment, the master goes, oh, you know that I'm a hard man who uh, reaps where I don't sow and um, you know, uh, gets other people to work for me. Okay then I'll engage you like that. And then he does. The point is, like, if we want to engage God in that way, he's going to give us what we want. But it's not going to go well. You were made for something different. And that's where this reversal comes in. Look down at verse 5. This is so great. Paul says, but for the, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, let's go through this phrase by phrase, okay? Through the Spirit, okay, what does that mean? That means that um, the, the Spirit is the active one in this. In other words, our dependence goes to the Spirit, through the Spirit, by faith, faith being in that moment, it's like um, by the means of faith. In other words, the, faith is the instrument there's a better way to, that's the classical way of putting it. We'll just keep going with that. Is the instrument through which we depend on the Spirit, and then it comes to this hope of righteousness, okay? Now, there's a ton to say about this. We don't have time to flesh it out fully, but let me be clear on something. Hope in the Bible does not mean wishful thinking. In our context, hope is that, right? Like, I hope my football team wins more than six games this year or loses more than six games this year so they get a better draft pick or the playoffs. Like, that's wishful thinking because my team is always right in the middle and they continually stink every year. This is why. Biblical hope is a certainty. It is a a knowledge, a certain knowledge that something will happen because something has already happened. Right? It is... The hope of the resurrection is not, you know, I'm really just wishing that I'm going to be raised from the dead. No. The hope of the resurrection is I will be because Jesus already has been. It is that I know that will happen because this already has. The hope of righteousness, okay, 
is not wishful thinking. It is something coming in the future that we are certain of because something has already been accomplished. Now, of righteousness. Righteousness is a slippery term. Slippery term in the Bible, uh, especially because of our traditions. Most of the time when we think of righteousness, we think of morality, like someone who's really good. Sure, it can mean that. But generally, biblically, it means faithfulness to an agreement or a requirement, okay? So someone can be righteous in that they are fulfilling what is required of them. Like, um, oh, one of the fun ones in the Psalms. This is a fun one. One of the Psalms that David wrote, he says, Judge me, Lord, according to my righteousness. And we all read that and go, ooh, David didn't have a good shot. And so we go, well, that must be him speaking for Jesus. No, it's not. It's, it's David speaking like, listen, I've been faithful. Have I been perfect? No. But you know what also was in God's covenant? Sacrifice. I've done all the things. Like, I'm, I am faithful to this thing. And so, listen, I've, I've been faithful. I don't deserve what's happening to me. Come on, like, help me out here. So we associate it with morality, which is fine so long as we understand that it has to do with God's covenant requirements. And so basically what he's saying is like, look, being righteous has to do with being faithful, which means being fully and finally in. And he's saying the hope of that, the hope of being fully and finally in God's family, we're waiting for that. Because that's coming when we are restored to God fully and finally. But it's not wishful thinking. It's not like we have to do something else to get it. It's not that we have to then accomplish something, hedge our bets. We don't have to hedge our bets. We're certain of it. We, we are hoping in it. The hope of it is that it's coming. Why is it coming? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. So everything's going to be okay. Okay. Now, verse 6. Verse 6 is so great, but it can be so misunderstood. Okay, look down at there. He says, For in Christ, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's get with the qualifier first. In Christ. Uh, we talk about this a lot too, at least we have since I've gotten here. Um, scholars, if you're into the like, theology and Bible world, they kind of go back and forth, and so there's a big argument. Is he talking about uh, mystically being in Christ, or is he talking about some kind of like legally being in Christ? Like, how does that work? Uh, I'll let them debate that. We can debate that all day long, but the result of the situation is this. Okay, so if you get nothing else, get this. Being in Christ means what's true of him is true of you. If you're in Christ, what's true of him is true of you. What does that mean? Right? So what does Paul mean when he says it? Well, he says, if you've been united to Jesus, whether you have these markers, circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. Why? Because Jesus is what's true of you, not you. He is what's true of you. If you're in Christ, those markers, they just lose their relevance because he is what's true of you, not you. Do you you realize what that means? Like, if if you're not a Christian here today, do you realize that this is the biggest difference between Christianity and every other world system? Because every other world system, whether we're talking religions or philosophies or anything else, is about what you bring to the table. It's about what you are going to do, right? And listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not blowing smoke. I'm not taking you into my spin zone. I, let me just be honest. In Christianity, and by that I mean real biblical Christianity, not those things that pass for it, 
Your status is not about what you do, have done, or will do. It's about Jesus. If you think it's about what you have done, you drastically and woefully misunderstand what you've done. If you think it's really about what you do, you probably need to ask some friends around you about what it's like to live with you. And if you think it's about what you're going to do, let's just be honest. You, like everyone else, loses their New Year's resolution on January 2nd. Okay? It's not about what you have done, are doing, or will do. It's about Jesus. To be united to Jesus by faith means that God deals with what, that, sorry, that Jesus has dealt with what you've done and you benefit from what he's done. And what it does is it removes any of the weight of all of these activities, which means that, like, it's not that, like, this, this, this thing, this, this one thing that Paul's harping on, circumcision, he could have harped on diet, he could have harped on Sabbath, but he's harping on circumcision. This one thing, he's like, it's not that it becomes meaningless. I mean, it, sure. I mean, at the end of the day, Paul later will actually have one of his own followers circumcised so that the guy could have a voice with Jewish people. He's not saying, like, like listen, doing this is now evil. Like, what he's saying is, like, it doesn't matter. Do it, don't do it. It's me, it, it doesn't do anything before God. Sure, it could be a cultural thing. It could be a family thing. It could be lots of different things. But it's not doing anything before God. It can never be a place of trust or a box to check off when you're evaluating where you are with God. Paul says, do it, don't do it. Who cares? Who cares? Okay. So the markers don't matter. And he's saying, like, look, if you put your trust in him, you're cutting yourself off from Jesus. Just know that that's what you're doing. Really, they don't really matter because you're in Christ. You're in him. Okay, so what does matter? <laughs> well, Paul says it's faith working through love. Look at that again. He says, Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, there's two issues here. First, what does it mean for faith to work through love? And second, why does it mean anything if we're united to Jesus? Okay, so first, faith working through love. Here's the deal. Why do you do things? Yeah, that's the real question. Why, why do we do things? Like what, what actually does show that we're followers of Jesus or really even better than that, like what shows that we are what we were meant to be? Right? I've said it a couple times, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther called it like turn, uh, that Jesus kind of turns us back outwards, that we're folded in on ourselves by sin, but that Jesus turns ourselves outwards, okay? Here's what that means. You and I, if we're being just flat honest, and I don't really care where you're at spiritually, if you're just being flat honest, we do things to get things. We look out for number one. We always do. We serve to ease our guilt. We work hard to make up for our failures. We help other people to feel better about ourselves. 
You know, again, that makes sense because if we need a status, if we need to make ourselves safe, if we need to get satisfied, that makes perfect sense. But what that means is when we're doing that, we're not loving anyone, we're using them. Like it, let, me, let me be like, uh, I'm going to step on a couple toes, and I, I'm, I'm not really sorry, but I do think this is something important for us to understand. If, if you serve in, in this community, okay, First off, awesome. I think we all need to be serving in the community. Um, I, th- I think that's something that we want to give a lot of attention to here. But if you reflect on your motivation, and your motivation is to ease your own sense of guilt at your own life situation, or it's to make yourself feel better because you know that you feel better than you did uh, the day before when you go and do something like that, I need you to understand and to check that motivation because it's actually maybe that you're not, ser- you're not really loving the people that you're serving. You're actually using them to feel better, to ease your guilt. It doesn't mean you're not accomplishing anything. <laughs> it just means that, like, is that what we're supposed to be doing? See, that's not faith working through love. Faith says my status, my safety, my satisfaction All of that is supplied in Jesus. I don't need anything from anybody. I don't need anything from you. If you love me or don't, doesn't matter. If you you think I'm awesome or don't, doesn't matter. If you think you want to come and be a part of this church, doesn't matter. It, It doesn't matter. Everything that I need is in Jesus, which allows me to love. Because love, that's how faith, okay, that's where the faith component is. I don't need anything from anyone because Jesus has given me everything. So I don't need anything that anyone else can give me. Love says what I can do is I need to uh, serve, I need to work for your flourishing at cost, even if it costs me. So faith says I have everything I need from Jesus. That frees me to love because I don't need to get anything from you. I can, I can work for your flourishing even if it costs me because there's nothing that you can take from me that's going to take away my Jesus. So why does it matter? Well, what we're dealing with is a proof that we're made right. I mean, what would possess someone to not look out for their own good? Right? Think with me. And, and some of you know church history and some of you don't. You realize, like, in the Roman world, one of the ways that the early church grew so much is that the Roman world, periodically, because of sanitation and living conditions, would go through these plagues, pandemics. People would get crazy sick, and all the people that could would flee the cities because they didn't want to get sick. So they fled the cities, and they went and they lived in, the, in their summer homes. And the people that stayed were Christians, and they stayed and they served the sick, many of them dying. Why? Because they're like, it's just death. Can't take away Jesus. I die, it's gain, right? I mean, Paul said it. So I can love people. People are laying in in homes in which their entire family has abandoned them because they're sick, and no one is there to care for them except the Christians who come in and are loving them. Why? Because they don't need anything from them. They don't need safety, they don't need status, they don't need their satisfaction. It's wrapped up in Jesus. I can give away everything because Jesus has given me everything. That's faith working through love. You don't have to work for you, but if you can't, if, if 
other, if you believe that you have to provide for yourself, you can never truly love others. I mean, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean you can't be nice. It just means you can't work for their good at cost to yourself because you're always going to be doing the calculus. If I do this, what does it cost me here? I can do this much, but not that much more. But if you believe that Jesus provided you everything, then there is nothing else that can give you anything. And Paul's saying, you want a, you want a sign that says that, that you're reconciled to God? There it is. Not that silly thing on your skin. That's it. See, the hard thing is at the end of the day, it isn't about what you've done on the outside. That's the hardest thing about our faith. It's about what's going on in here. It's about what's going on in here. But if we're being honest, what's going on in here can often be recognized on the outside. And the freedom of the gospel allows us to give ourselves away because Jesus has given himself to us. And there is nothing that we can do or anyone else can do that can make us lose him. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. It is so easy for us to fall into one of two camps where we either put so much weight on this one thing and say this one activity is all that shows that we're in Jesus or, or we can kind of flip the script and go, no, 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 nothing matters. <laughs> we fall into either legalism or some form of relativism and we, we just want to, we can't work out the tension that it's not about what we do, it's about what's driving what we do. And so, Lord, if we're going to get that, it's because you are pressing it into our hearts, and I beg of you to do that in my heart, in the hearts of those who are here, those who are listening from home. Lord, drive it into our hearts so that because we are so laying our trust in you, that we might be able to love others through faith in you. We ask you to do this in Christ's name.